This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. As usual, I'm here on Zoom with Cece. Cece, what's the most basic thing about you? That's a hard one, I know. (laughs) It is a hard one. There's a lot of basic things about me. I think it's tied for the amount of Starbucks I drink or the amount I wear leggings as pants, which is always. I do not own jeans. Also here, of course, is Holly. Holly, what's your coldest take? Oh, no. Or lukewarmest, but I don't want a hot take. Oh no. Oh, okay, well obviously you need a hot take. All right, hot no, take. No, I don't want a hot take. Well, all, that's the joke, okay, right? Fine, all, okay. my hot, all my takes are cold. When I say they're hot takes, mm. Mm. <laughs> my coldest take. I had one in mind when I read this. Dr. Pepper is better than root beer? Is that something? Dr. Pepper yeah, is better than pretty, root beer? That's a pretty loop. All right, let's, hold on. I'll get, an, I like I'll get another. Those are my two ta- favorites. I'll get a take of the take. Hold on. The second take of the take. Oh, Dr. Pepper is better than root beer. Faux show. Is that something? Is that anything? It might be good. <laughs> yeah. yeah okay. Good. Okay. Sure. Uh, and I'm Kelsey, and everything here is totally normal. Totally, completely, and utterly normal. Oh, wait, can I talk about the Haunted Mansion movie now? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> One of the greatest <laughs> movies of all time. But I used to not, be really scared of that movie. zombie scene where the, the girl's scene. trapped in like the crypt or whatever. That yeah. used to freak me out. The black crypt that bears yeah. no name. Mm. so good i love all the ghost balls i was i okay so i watched that i'm sorry the, the, the ghost balls the what oh the ghost, the ghost balls. balls that's that's what i thought you said they're balls of light that are the ghosts yeah. sure. and sometimes fair. they become like human form but that's sure sometimes yeah they also become the balls but anyway so i just watched the haunted mansion movie like a couple days ago and then i took dusty to the dog park and then the like the fog was like rising off of the pond and it was like the first thing that came to mind was ghost balls from haunted mansion <laughs> do you think do you think if you were to if you were to throw a ghost ball if dusty it. would catch it do- yeah obviously oh. right yeah. like like she yeah is, is, isn't that isn't i'm pretty sure dusty can see ghosts because sometimes gonna she just say, like, like looks and i'm just like I know cats have this weird thing with ghosts, right? Because I have a ghost cat that you all, I've told you about this many times. Yeah, the classic Um, ghost cat. Yeah, that that happened the other day, by the way. Ghost cat, mob boss? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, mob boss, ghost cat. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's my ska band. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. Honestly, that sounds like that's a pretty good band name. We should have a Mm -hmm. channel in the the Discord that is band names. Oh, yes. Band names? That'd be, yeah. that'd be a good one. That'd be a good one. Um, well, I came up with one the other day. Let's we'll see what you got. I don't remember. No? That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't remember? Yeah. It's not What's bad your favorite band? I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's very early 2000s. That, that is a bit early 2000s. Pop punk. Honestly? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pop punk. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a song called Who's on First? What's on Second? Or whatever. <laughs> I don't know something. Yeah. I watched the original one of that the other day, by the way. Yes. Uh, with Evan like, Costello. Evan Costello. They're hilarious. But it is this weird sort of dynamic because clearly comedy then was like the, the, the layouts, like the jokes and stuff, are it's so different because they go for like just a little bit too long. Well, people had longer attention spans because they didn't have the internet. I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Mom? Is that you? <laughs> They didn't have their damn TikTok. What are we talking about again? <laughs> Why are we here? 
Evan right. Costello are great though. I love all the monster ones they do. They did like Evan Costello meet Frankenstein and meet the mummy. Really? There's like four, three or four different ones where they like meet different monsters. And there's huh. like one main monster, but then like there's other monsters that show up too. I think the mummy one, they're like, it's been a while since I saw it, but they're like shipping and helping ship the mummy somewhere. And then it comes to life uh-huh. and then like Frankenstein and Dracula are there too. But sure. Frank- Frankenstein's monster, I should say. Right. Sounds like Dracula. a fun Scooby-Doo special. It's a good, that yeah, it's basically like, like live action Scooby-Doo, special. but with Evan Costello jokes. So it's excellent. Honestly, hmm. honestly, I, I would have- I would have watched a Scooby-Doo meet Abbott and Costello, all things considered. I've watched that, Scooby-Doo meets John Cena, so my bar's really low. That, I saw the Scooby-Doo I, I was gonna say your bar special they did really with Kiss. High, obviously. <laughs> I didn't know they did a special with Kiss. They did do a special with Kiss. It was really weird. It. it was. It <laughs> they was go to like wild. a Kiss planet and like there's a spaceship and it's they sing a little song. Yeah, what's but up it's, with it's that? Only, I think it's, it really is Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, I think, but wild. the other guy, the cat, makeup guy or should i say jinkies i'm gonna talk about a lady who may or may not have existed and may or may not have completely wrecked one of who's considered to be the great leaders of history. And this lady is Tamiris. Side note, I actually first got interested in her story from playing Civ Six, where she's one of the leaders you can play. Overall, good character design, fun bonuses, but I digress. If Tamiris was a real historical figure, she lived around 530 BC and was the queen of the Masagate, who I mispronounced terribly <laughs> and were a pastoral nomadic people from the Eurasian steppe within sort of the Scythian group of cultures that the Greeks mainly talked about. Their modern ethnic descendants are pretty heavily debated. Iranian's a pretty common one, but some people relate them more closely to groups near the Black Sea or even Turkish people. Some people say groups in India. Not important for the main story. At this point in history, they were in the area of modern Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, that whole area. I'll leave it there with the Scythians and the Masgate right now, since I want to get to the story, but I'll add a preface. This story is really all we have to go on about Tamiris, and we get most of the detail from Herodotus and some other people like Strabo and Cassiodorus and Jordanus, who I'm not pronouncing correctly. But they also mention Tamiris, but they're also all probably referencing Herodotus and his sources. And Herodotus lived about 484 to 425 BC, so almost 100 years after all of this was believed to have taken place. And yeah, it's pretty questionable histories from Herodotus. But like I said, she was queen of the Masagate. Her husband had died before the start of this story, so she was a widow. Her territory was on the northern edge of the territory of Cyrus the Great, first big Persian emperor. If you don't know, he was a pretty big deal, famous ruler, famous military guy, but that's for dude history. This is lady history. So around 530 BCE, he was chilling and said, hmm, I'd really like to secure my northern border and get that sweet, sweet territory. Oh, that ruler's a lady. Oh, she's a widow. Excellent. So his wife had died before too, if that would have mattered at all, which it didn't. So he proposed a marriage with Tamiris, who promptly responded with, yeah, nah, very cash. She didn't think too much of it. So being a totally reasonable guy, he went to the Araxes River across from which Tamiris and her people lived and started to bridge the river so he could take the land by force. It's a very Cyrus thing to do. And Tamiris caught wind of this 
And then she had this great quote, which I'm taking from a translation of Herodotus. Cease, king of the Medes, from that on which you intend, for you cannot know if the completion of this work will be for your advantage. Cease and be king of your own country, and be patient so see us ruling those whom we rule. Which essentially is, you don't know if this is going to go well for you, my guy. Go rule your shit and watch me rule mine. And then in that same quote, she figured Cyrus wouldn't listen to that. She's pretty smart. So she added, if you still want to duke it out, no need to build a bridge. If you want to fight here, we'll back off so you can cross. And if you want to fight on your side, you back off so we can cross. So most of Cyrus's generals said, yeah, no, let her cross over here. Let's find out our turf. Except for this guy, Croesus. Again, names, dead languages. And he was known as Croesus the Lydian. And he gave a whole speech, a few paragraphs long to Cyrus that I won't quote here, but essentially said, I know you don't think you're going to lose, but if you do and the Masagate win, They'll take territory or even your whole empire, and that would be fucking embarrassing. And so Cyrus ended up crossing the river into their territory instead and followed another suggestion of Croesus, and that was to get the enemy super wasted. There is also a bit in here, a little side bit about how Cyrus thinks his son Darius is plotting against him because of a weird dream he has. Spoiler alert, it was actually telling him that he would die in this country, but that's not relevant, so we'll just skip it. Back to the fight. Cyrus leaves some of his, quote, useless troops on the Masagate side of the river, and then the rest go back across. And what the useless ones are obviously defeated, and then the Masagate force that attacked them got wicked drunk on all the purposefully left wine, because according to Herodotus, they'd never seen such tasty, tasty wine before. And when they were sleeping, the Persians came and killed them and took some other people captive. It went Perfect wait, wait, wait a second. So they just <laughs> found this wine sitting out and they're like, hey, this is good. Like, let's drink this. I think their mindset what? was like, we it's just like killed all these you found guys. on the subway. Like, don't do that. Well, it, was, it was in the Persian camp. So they oh, were like, oh, okay. they must have been drinking this excellent, this tasty okay. wine. And they so they like were like, left it on the side of the road or something. <laughs> <laughs> they just, they let it like a trail of M&Ms just mm-hmm. to a big cage that they dropped on them. They left a box propped up with a stick with the wine underneath. (laughs) That was Cyrus's big plan. So the important part here is that they took Tamiris's squad leader, Spargapses, who was her, I'm accepting guesses for Spargapses' relation to Tamiris. Lover. No, it was her son. (laughs) She was a mom first. So Tamiris, of course, demands her goddamn son back. And fittingly, since she's a mom, she shames Cyrus. And she says, Cyrus, you played a dirty trick with the wine. Y'all love the wine so much. It's not the same as fighting. Y'all nasty. You should be ashamed of yourself. Since you don't want to fight fair, give me my son back and leave. She was all ready for this big fight to duke it out. You know, she's a warrior queen. She was ready. And she's like, I don't even want to fight you now. The best part of her message to Cyrus through another stellar quote, this time with some paraphrasing from the Rejected Princesses website. She says, Refuse, and I swear by the sun, the sovereign lord of the Masagate, bloodthirsty as you are, I will give you your fill of blood. And keep that quote in your mind. Keep that in the front there. So Cyrus said, yeah, whatever, to that very cool quote. Didn't appreciate it much. When Sparagapses wakes up in captured in Cyrus's camp, and realized what happened, he begged Cyrus to free him. And in a nice little twist, Cyrus frees him from his bonds. 
in a bad little twist, Spiragepsis immediately kills himself, presumably from shame, but that's reading between the lines. Maybe he wanted to give his mom like a really good reason to kick this guy's ass. But either way, when Tamiris figured out that Cyrus gave a meh to her message and her son killed himself, she rallied the troops, like, like all of them. In There's a Kazakhstani movie about Tamiris, and in that movie, she rallies like all of the groups of the steppe. And so Herodotus says about this battle, this fight I judge to have been the stubbornest of all fights that were ever fought by men that were not Greek, which I think the last part's hilarious because it feels like an add-on. Like he wrote the first part and was like, oh, I'm going to get my ass beat if I say this was the best fight ever. I'll add that we're not Greek. And so Herodotus doesn't give many gory details about the fighting. Essentially, they started with arrows. They ran out of arrows. They switched to fighting on foot. Eventually, Tamiris gets the upper hand. Boom, boom. Pow. She did great. Most of the Persian army was defeated, and in the heat of battle, Cyrus got killed. Not a lot of detail on how either, but I'm going to imagine it was pretty cool. So the fighting is done, and Tamiris does what anybody would do. She filled a drinking skin with human blood and starts searching for Cyrus's body. Eventually, she finds him. She cuts off his head. She puts it into the bag of blood and says, Though I live and conquer you, you have undone me, overcoming my son by guile. But even as I threatened, so will I do and give you your fill of blood. And see, there's that quote. Very good quotes from this lady. Probably fancied up by Herodotus, but just embrace that story. And that's it. That's essentially all we know about her. One writer, Jordanus, also says that after this, she built a city and named it Tomai after herself, which, excellent. Herodotus says that there are a lot of different stories about Cyrus's death. He says this right after telling this one, and he says, this is the most worthy of credence. A lot of other stories say Cyrus died in different battles of natural causes. Michael the Syrian, in his letters, says Tamiris did end up marrying him, but also did still kill him. And that's how Cyrus died. So this, in my opinion, is as likely as any. It's a great story. We don't know what happened to Cyrus. History is weird like that, but this is as likely as any. Any other battle, if a little glammed up by Herodotus. But while we don't have any actual physical evidence of Tamiris, I want to quick mention what we do have is actual physical evidence of Scythian warrior women like Tamiris. So Currently, more and more graves are being unearthed or re-examined from Central Asia, the Eurasian steppe, and areas of Russia, and they contain high-ranking Scythian warrior women. In fact, a lot of people believe that these ladies inspired Greek stories of the Amazons, especially since they were surprisingly common, like it wasn't one or two rare individuals. A study even back in the 80s showed at least 40 female warrior graves in Scythia, that broad kind of geographic area. And approximately 20% of the Saramation, which was like an Iranian group in the wider Scythian category, 20% of those warrior graves in a region of Russia were female. And so there's even been recent Smithsonian and National Geographic headlines about unearthing of 11 burials in Russia that were all armed young women. And yeah, this all goes to say Herodotus and other Greek writers who tell this story have some issues with reality. But there's a basis for this badass warrior queen, Tamiris. And I, for one, really like this story because unlike some other legendary warrior queens who I also love, like Boudicca or Zenobia, Tamiris won. And that's it. Nothing bad happens to her afterward. She just won. And she has some killer quotes, too. She has some killer quotes, which I believe in my heart that she did say. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to watch that that uh, movie from Kazakhstan. Uh, oh, it's her. fantastic. 
know what it's called? Uh, Tamiris, but the Y oh, is an yeah. I. Hmm. Yeah, it's I'll it's great. It, it has sub captions. I think I watched it on YouTube, but it might be down by now. I'll check that out. That sounds awesome. I want like a 300 version of this story. That's kind of what the movie is, honestly. Oh, it's very mix of if you've Less seen CGI. The, yeah, mm. if More you've seen the movie effects. Mongol, it's a lot like that. Mostly because it's a lot of horseback riding. I don't know how much they incorporate from Herodotus, though, because I think Herodotus also says like, oh, yeah, these people ate the elderly. Like when you got too- As one does. When you got too old, they ate you, and that was the best death, but they didn't eat sick elderly people. Makes sense. That's the, good the, the meat's a lot. It's it's not as tender. It's like, not I, as I tender. You know. You know, germ theory. Maybe they don't eat the sick people. Of yeah. That, <laughs> seems, old, that seems that seems fair. Yield germ theory. Don't eat your sick grandpa. Only eat your healthy grandpa. Mm-hmm. Excellent job, CC. I am going to take on someone less legendary. Matter of fact, we know for a fact that this person actually did exist very much in the flesh. She is the matriarch of uh, of paleoarchaeology of the modern times. This is Mary Leakey of of much, much fame and discussion. A very, very personal, personal hero of mine as well. Yeah, so, you know, kind of going to talk a little bit about the backstory, you know, her backstory, her, you know, sort of life story and, uh, you know, a little bit of that. So, you know, uh, she was actually born on uh, the 6th of February, 1913, and then lived for for quite a long time up until uh, 1996 uh, in December. Uh, During that time, she revolutionized the uh, field of paleobiology and hominid archaeology and uh, early human ancestors. So it's, it, you know, she's, she's got quite a record uh, going for her, although I, I've never heard of her killing Cyrus the Great. That's, uh, that's a bit off. So, you know, you can't, you can't say that, but it's she did kill bar. it in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's a high bar. She, she killed it in other ways. So, uh, but yeah, so uh, a little bit about her sort of early life. She, her family traveled uh, around a lot. Her dad was a, a, a painter, essentially, and uh, I believe landscape painter and illustrator. So he would go around to various locations around France and uh, around Europe and uh, other places, um, you know, painting the various scenic vistas and such that he came across. And uh, in, in part of those adventures brought her and her family to France where uh, she then spent uh, a good chunk of her childhood. Before we go further on that, though, there's a little bit of backstory about her family. She actually came, uh, she's actually, you know, come, uh, ironically enough, as a a matriarch of archaeology herself, she actually uh, came from a history. Uh, Her family history has a a fair few archaeologists or archaeologists, quote-unquote, in it as well. She was, uh, her mom was descended from John Frere, John Frere, I believe that's how you pronounce it, who uh, was a British antiquarian, generally well regarded. I'm not, or at least at the time, not sure how his work is held up. I'm sure it has held up horribly, but I could be wrong about that, so don't quote me on that. I'm going off the assumption of most of 
antiquarians I know about, especially the British ones. But yeah, so this John Frera, he he was he worked on uh, lower Paleolithic like stone tools in Britain and stuff like that. So before stuff like Piltdown and all that happened, this was kind of the basis for what ended up you know being disproved there. So but but sort of a basis anyway. So her whole family was was legit. The one of the most notable things was that during her time in France, she grew and cultivated this love of archaeology and, and human ancestry. So she, for example, was she saw the the Peshmerl cave art. I believe I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce that. You know, I'm sure there's something similar to that. And and sort you know this this some of the incredible uh, artistic depictions that are on these cave paintings in in France that are very famous that she saw and. This sparked a, a love of love of the past in her. This uh, this love of the past was what carried her through a we'll call it chaotic education. Uh, she this is mo- most of this is from her autobiography, but she's notorious for having gone to two separate Catholic uh, schools, uh, convent schools, and was expelled from both. One reason was that for uh, is that she refused to recite poetry. And then the other one, the second one she got expelled from was, uh, let's see here, she caused an explosion in the chemistry lab. So, you know, as one does, these things happen. So, you know, the, her education was non-traditional. Her family tried to hire tutors and that didn't go very well, mainly because they were afraid they'd be turned into chemistry lab explosions, which is fair, but it's this kind of a trend. Uh, but what kept her going through that was this passion for archaeology, this passion for, you know, the, the, the study of the human past. And so one day when she was, you know, after she'd pursued this research personally on her own for several years, she went to, on her own, uh, unregistered, go sit in on archaeology classes at University College London. And there, some of the notable archaeologists of the time that taught her included Mortimer Wheeler, who will I think Kelsey will talk about uh, later on. She also found many other you know, sources of, of knowledge and, and inspiration, including she was uh, tutored by Dorothy Little, who was a, fa- one of, a pioneer uh, archaeologist. She, her whole thing was she worked with uh, pottery and uh, bone decorations with pottery and, uh, and stuff like that. She had a site called Hembury in Devon that Mary Leakey went on, sort of developed in the archaeology skill set there. Also, uh, interestingly, an interesting point about Dorothy Little, if we're talking about powerful women in archaeology, uh, she was herself exceptionally talented and uh, also pioneered another uh, incredible woman archaeologist named Mary Eile de Poutron, who was in probably, again, probably not pronouncing that right, but uh, she was an Irish archaeologist who uh, later ran a site called Island Bridge, which is really cool. Through this work, she sort of developed her sort of archaeological skill set and started developing her, some skills, including work as an archaeological illustrator. It was in this sort of line of work that she met one Louis Leakey. We'll sort of get back to him in a bit, their, their whole dynamic. But, you know, as, as she sort of progressed in her career, there were several different you know, incidents and events that brought her to focus her work in Kenya, in Africa. And she and Louis would sort of collaborate and work together on several different sites. Although it is important to note that Mary was the scientist and Lewis was the face. For a long time, this was 
how it was planned and it was uh, you know it was mary was was okay with this she she you know this was the way she wanted it she wanted to be able to focus on her work and lewis could bask in the limelight if he wanted to but then lewis went and fucking died so she went and carried on her work on her own and got the credit that she so desperately deserved and made the best discoveries without him in fact one of the more notable discoveries she made while Lewis was in bed. So <laughs> in bed, asleep. So, uh, and we'll get to that here in a second. And this is this is the Olduvai Gorge discovery. This is the first of her two big discoveries. And at Olduvai Gorge, there are several different sort of aspects that are interesting archaeologically, including some stone tools, Homo habilis remains, so, so other kinds of human ancestors. But one day, Lewis was quote-unquote sick, and stayed in bed. But Mary, being the, you know, ever-driven scientist that she was, went out into the field, and she found what she then called Zinjanthropus, which has later been renamed uh, and reclassified to Paranthropus boisei, or Australopithecus uh, boisei, depending on uh, who you ask. But this is a a boy, exactly, right. This discovery is one of the most important discoveries of human ancestors for for a very long time, and, and especially in the, the 20th century, it was revolutionary for the field of hominid paleobi- paleobiology, Hompal stuff uh, really sort of changed the game. You know, so, so with that, she has sort of come onto the scene. They knew some of the uh, work was done by Lewis as well, but she was the main workhorse behind the throne. So, so she then had proved that she could walk the walk or t- uh, talk the talk. So now then she... Uh, was able to walk the walk, which she then did uh, at another site in Africa, very close to uh, Olivai Gorge, a site called Laitoli, or Laitoli, I'm not entirely certain. This, where she discovered some uh, fossilized footprints of, of hominids uh, 3.7 million years ago. Basically, the idea is, is that these, these hominids were walking through the, through the ways, and there was a volcano that had spewed ash over their landscape, and then it rained, which made it a perfectly concrete-like material that allowed to preserve their footprints. Interestingly enough, funny story about this, they actually discovered this when a cadre of Leakey's grad student workers were throwing elephant dung at each other, and one of these students in desperation to not be hit in the face with a elephant dung frisbee dove to the ground and basically went, fell face first into these footprints, or at least that's how the legend goes. But yeah, so this was really her sort of walk on the wild side. She, she really, at this point, was a step ahead of the game and really got into her stride with this discovery. She, you know, keeping the pace with the archaeological record and, you know, and archaeology at the time. And it really put a spring in her step in, in, her, in her academic career. So, you know, from there, she, she went on to continue her academic career and, and, and inspire many other women in the field, including myself. That's, that's about what I got for, for Mary in terms of I kind of went in a bit uh, of detail, but, you know, I hope, I hope it's valuable. It certainly is for me. That was great, except for all the walking step puns at the end there. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just, I'm just expressing how my revolutionary shoe. she was. Oh boy. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> the last lady of today's episode is one of my all-time favorites. And she's part of the same generation of scholars, more or less, that Mary Leakey is about the same time. 
So Kathleen Kenyon is my lady. I refer to her as the babe quite regularly. She's the babe of archaeology. Also, I found out just today when I was doing some extra research, her nickname was Kay, which is cool. So Kay. So Kathleen Kenyon was born on January 5th, 1906, making her a Capricorn. Um, she was born in London. And I saw on Wikipedia, and I wasn't able to confirm this on any other sources that I looked at, that the house that she grew up in was right next to the British Museum. In fact, it was connected to the British Museum, which I don't know if that's true, but her father was one of the directors of the British Museum for a while, Frederick Kenyon. And he himself was a Greek New Testament scholar and a classicist. So he was doing his own sort of scholarly ancient history thing. And so Kathleen grew up in this context of scholars. And I think her grandfather was also a scholar and her great grandpa was like a lawyer or something. So she was in this, you know, scholarly, well-to-do sort of family in London. So there was this context with her growing up and they really emphasized her going to school, much like Mary Leakey, although she didn't have the, the chemistry failures that Mary did, but she went to a couple different schools, an all-girls school. I think it was a boarding school for for high school. And then she went to Oxford for college, specifically Somerville College and within Oxford. I'm not exactly sure how the whole Oxford system works, but there's a lot of different colleges within the Oxford University. So she goes to Oxford College and she's not or Oxford University, rather, Somerville College within Oxford University. And she's not quite sure what she wants to study, but one of her contacts, and I'm not clear on what her role is at Oxford at the time, maybe librarian, maybe her professor, not sure, but she suggests that Kathleen goes on a dig. So on her first dig, she goes to Zimbabwe at the time known as Rhodesia as a photographer. And she starts, you know, getting this dig experience. And like, I think all of us experienced at some point or another, falls in love with field work. And she decides that archaeology is what she wants to do. So after she digs in Zimbabwe, I guess she goes back to school for a little bit. And then she goes, actually, yeah, so she, she goes back to school. And then the next year, so this is in 1929 that she digs in Zimbabwe. And then 1930, she starts digging at Verulamium. I'm not sure if my Latin pronunciation is great, but it's this Roman site in St. Albans, which is pretty near London, but she digs there for a good five years. And so this is where she's getting her expertise in stratigraphy down. She becomes known as sort of the, the mistress of stratigraphy. She's real big on geological theory in archaeology because it wasn't really a thing at this point. This is the early 30s and we're still talking about archaeology as being going and finding cool stuff and taking it and putting it in your museum. So stratigraphy is the, the layers of dirt that accumulate over time at an archaeological site. And basically stratigraphy is just describing the sort of differentiation between different periods of dirt accumulation. And it's also important to note that newer stuff is on top and older stuff's at the bottom. That might seem, you know, kind of obvious, but I mean, that's the, that's the idealized form of stratigraphy. Obviously, it's more complicated if you have pits dug at different periods that intersect different older layers, and it gets more complicated. But ideally, it's just nice, even horizontal layers of older stuff with newer stuff on top. So she's really trying to emphasize the scientific parts of archaeology and really making it more of a science than just stealing artifacts from other countries, which is cool. And so in, in these five years at uh, Verulamium, not sure about that. I She's think it's Verula you know, Verulamium. Verulamium. And it's interesting because I'm fairly certain that Mary Leakey dug, dug there too. That's where, well, okay, that's, yeah. that's, that's probably true then because that's where she met Wheeler. Wheeler dug there too. Um, so Mortimer Wheeler, as Holly mentioned, 
he was also a famous archaeologist at the time, sort of the generation before both Mary and Kathleen. Uh, but he became a mentor to to Kathleen, and I suppose like suppose Mary too. And it is from Kathleen's work with him that the the famed uh, Kenyon Wheeler method gets its name, both of their last names. So the the Kenyon Wheeler method is sort of the traditional method of archaeology now. It wasn't at the time, but it's digging five meter by five meter squares down with meter or so walkways or bulks in between so that you can see the stratigraphy in each square as opposed to just digging a big area down you know big horizontally and then down and not being able to see the stratigraphy in each area in the interior of this big rectangle she made the areas smaller so you can see more precise stratigraphy when you're digging um, which is really important again because we're, we're introducing or she's introducing this geological theory into archaeology, which really wasn't a thing yet. But her and Wheeler really worked on that together. And I think that must have started at Verulamium. So that was 1930 to 1935. And also in the 30s, she's digging a little bit in Palestine at the time. This is before the Israeli War of Independence, so all Palestine. British ruled Palestine too, which is also why she had connections because she was in the British aristocracy more or less. But she also dug a little bit there. And then she dug at Leicester. Again, I'm not sure about British pronunciations of places. And there were there was a Roman bath site and some other Roman sites in England kind of going between these sites. Uh, and then World War II happened. That was a thing. Um, and she was in the Red Cross. I wasn't able to find a lot of information about this. I'm get, I should note too that I'm getting a lot of this information from reviews of a biography that someone wrote on her. And I want to give a shout out to that biography because I haven't been able to read the book but I really want to now after reading the reviews and getting this information. But uh, the book's name is Dame Kathleen Kenyon, Digging Up the Holy Land by Miriam Davis. And it came out a while ago. It came out like 12 years ago now. But there's uh, several reviews that are freely available online, which is where I got a lot of this information from. And it seems like the, the actual biography is really good. So I'm looking forward to reading that. And then after that, you know, she didn't do much for a few years. She goes throughout her life. She's also working in different administrative positions in like boarding schools, especially girls only boarding schools. So maybe she's doing that at this time. I didn't really look into it because I just wanted to focus on the archaeological work. Um, but after this break and after World War II, she goes to Jericho finally, which is what she's really known for digging at Jericho. Um, and this begins in 1952. So she's digging. There's been some work done at Jericho in the 30s. And this is important because they find a wall and a tower and the people who dug up or the, the team that dug up the wall and the tower at Jericho in the 30s identified this as the wall that falls down when Joshua and his army come and siege Jericho in the Bible. And I, I'm not going to go over the whole Bible story, but the whole, all of the stories of Joshua and his, his troops taking over Canaan is in the book of Joshua. Um, but Jericho specifically is important because they're just like walking around, walking around, and then they uh, blow the horns. Shofar specifically. What's the plural of shofar? Shofar wrote? Shofarine? I think shofar wrote. But then the walls come down, which is a pretty common story. And it comes up now, <laughs> in, a, in a sad way, it comes up now a lot in some white supremacist uh, rhetoric, especially with the the very recent rating of the Capitol building. A lot of some of the evangelical Christian groups brought Shofar wrote to the Capitol, which is disturbing. And obviously they don't understand their history. But anyway, oh, Shofar wrote. 
I figured it out eventually. <laughs> but yeah, so so in the 30s, and again, this is this was the big trend in archaeology, and it's still a trend more or less now, but people want to identify finds in Israel and Palestine as being biblically based. And Kathleen Kenyon, I think, is really important because she was able to sort of hold her own personal Christian beliefs, you know, personally, but also look at the scientific and archaeological evidence that was in front of her and say, okay, these walls date to way earlier period, in fact, Neolithic, and so they can't possibly be the walls that Jericho's armies blew down. And also Kathleen's work at Jericho is important because she identified a difference in Neolithic strata. Some had pottery and some didn't have pottery. So we have now pre-pottery Neolithic and pottery Neolithic periods. And she was the first to make that distinction. And now it seems kind of obvious now when we think about using pottery to date stratigraphic levels, but Kathleen Kenyon and, and Mortimer Wheeler were some of the first people to think about using pottery to date geological levels, which is super important. And like now it's like all that we do in archaeology. She also did some carbon dating too, early carbon dating. But she was, again, a real pioneer in incorporating these more scientific methods into archaeology when they really hadn't been incorporated yet. Um, so after she dug at Jericho for a while, that was from 1952 to 1958, she dug at Jerusalem. And I couldn't find a lot of information about what was going on in Jerusalem. Apparently she hit a lot of roadblocks because there were some Israeli expeditions going on at the same time in Jerusalem. So basically she got all the seconds. If they didn't want to dig in an area, she would get to dig in the area. And she really didn't find a lot. Um, and apparently it was just kind of frustrating for her and it wasn't very fruitful. But that was near the end of her archeological career from 1961 to 1967. And then for the last years of her life, she lived for 11 years after that. She was the, the principal at a all-girls boarding school. But yeah, so she ended her life working in uh, academic administration as a principal of an all-girls boarding school, but still emphasizing, you know, education for women and having that sort of political bent. Um, and also, I should note that she dug in Palestine in the 50s, and she was, she did have a lot of anti-Zionist writings. I couldn't find a lot of them, but... All of uh, Kathleen Kenya's personal papers, or, or most of them at least, are at Baylor University in Texas, actually. And she didn't, as far as I know, have an association with Baylor University, but I think because of Baylor's Christian affiliation, they have a lot of the papers of early biblical archaeologists. But I think there's more there. I couldn't, they, it's not freely accessible online. It's just like, I went to the website trying to find her personal papers, but you have to like go to the actual library and get the catalog and everything, which is a bummer. So hopefully they're in the process of digitizing those because I think they'd be really interesting to look at. But for, based on the reviews of the biography that I looked at, she does have a lot of writings, especially in her later life, that are critiquing Zionism, which was, you know, that was happening right near the end of her life. And she lived through the Israeli War of Independence, but she didn't dig in Palestine again after that or Israel at this point. So I'm sure she had many thoughts about that. And I'm interested in learning more about what specifically she was thinking about. But yeah, so I found a couple of fun quotes that I wanted to share describing her. One, one of the ones from the biography, apparently she described, well, another thing to note too, is she, she never got married. She lived for quite a while and, you know, she was living in the early 20th century where there was a ton of pressure for women to get married and she was you know cream of the crop British aristocracy you know 
think of all the different movies you've seen where everyone's expected to get married at a pretty young age. She never did it. She never got married. And in fact, she said she only had three loves in her life. Archaeology, dogs, and gin, which I really love. That's a great quote. Same. Uh, same. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't like gin, but archaeology, dogs, and like whiskey? I'll take that. Rum for me? Rum. That's okay, a, uh, rum. Yeah. Don't discount um, gin, you guys. It's very uh, versatile. It's, uh, with a lot of mixers, maybe, but eh, not my favorite. It's not, not as favorite. piratey as rum. Yeah. And then um, one last quote is from W.G. Dever, who is an American archaeologist. He's one of those other ones in the same sort of realm as um, Wheeler and all those guys. But he had a good quote describing uh, Kathleen Kenyon after she died in 1978. He said, her gruff manner often obscured her gentler personal qualities, and she showed obvious impatience with excavators who did not possess an immediate and intuitive grasp of stratigraphical complexities in which she reveled and excelled, which I just love. She was just grumpy at everyone who couldn't do things as fast as she could, but she really was a nice kind of gal, which it sounds like Kathleen Kenyon would have absolutely kicked my ass. Oh, yeah. She would have kicked all of our asses, but (laughs) she sounds like a great person. And, And the more I learned about her, the more I love her. And I really want to... I really want to get access to her personal papers and see what's going on there. And I, I do want to read that biography too that I mentioned. I think I think there are some more fun stories. Another story that I met, uh, read about too. I'm not sure she was. I think she was visiting Qumran because I saw this on. Okay, so I saw this on a blog. I didn't put this in my sources, but it was citing the biography that I read reviews of. So I know it's true, but I'm not. The, the way they summarized it left detail out. They said the site of the Dead Sea Scroll, which one is a problem because there's more than one. Uh, but I assume they're talking about Qumran when she was visiting, but apparently she got in a car crash and she like crawled out of the window of the car. And the first thing she said was, where's my trowel? Which I love. That's great. She wanted to dig out the car. I think so. I think so. <laughs> you know, here's a traumatic a- situation. She needs to know where her damn trowel is. We got a priority set. Yeah. <laughs> I respect that. But yeah, so she's, she's a great lady. And there is quite a bit of information out there about her. You know, she's pretty famous comparatively. She's not such an obscure lady. You guys have done much more obscure ladies on this podcast, but she's a fun one for sure. And one of my favorites. Hearing you talk about Kenyon and hearing people talk about Leaky, Mary Leaky, is wild because it sounds a lot like, like they were kind of this like very similar personality wise. Like yeah. she was, she had like, she was famous for being a real stickler on the dig. Like I think they had to be though. Up. Women in archaeology yeah. at that time, they had to be true. tough. They had to be badasses. That's very true. That's or else they'd true. get pushed around. Yeah. yeah. And they were just fed up with it. Honestly. Fed up with the old boys club of archaeology and they demolished it for the better. Another story, Ed, something that I've uh, remembered about Leaky that I didn't get to say though is... Uh, that she always had with her a bunch of Dalmatians, a bunch of Dalmatians uh, <laughs> with her at all at any given time, and that they were just on the dig. They were just like spoiled rotten. Oh, like they would, they would, they would give them the the scraps from the table. <laughs> Honestly, it's such a mood. Like I want my well, own I mean, site so I can bring Dusty. <laughs> Honestly, Dust, well, actually, Dusty named. demolished it. Yeah, I probably named for one. There's and also she, be she finds things though. Oh yeah. Did I tell you about how she found AirPods one time? No way. <laughs> she Are found AirPods? working AirPods. <laughs> Did they work? Oh, yes. <laughs> what? No way. <gasps> oh my schnitzel. gosh, schnitzel. My baby. From yeah, Covery. Oh Calvary. my gosh. I fed God. schnitzel so much chicken schnitzel that she got a little <laughs> tummy. <laughs>
You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra, and you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at LexiBDraws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. CC is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you'll hear us next time on Lady History. Next time on Lady History, we'll be focusing on ancient women in STEM. So stay tuned. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. I, I can this redo so it if fun. you guys want to go like, if you guys want to do more like, like an anime, like next time on Lady History, we'll be focusing on, could I, is, is that a thing? Is that something? No. Guess what? We're on Patreon. Tiers start at just $1 a month. And we have three of them. Become a brilliant backer for $1. Find out early about new merch and ticketed events and get access to our monthly newsletter. Support our show by becoming a confident contributor for $4 a month. In addition to the benefits from the previous tier, you get access to our Discord community and one bonus episode every Sunday. Or lastly, prove that you love us the most by becoming a sensational superfan for $7. In addition to the benefits from the previous tiers, get access to a monthly interactive live stream with one of us and get the power to decide future Lady History content by voting. Join our community and help us keep the show running at patreon.com slash ladyhistorypod. Woohoo, we did it.